Um, a reading from Genesis 8, selected portions. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heaven had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth, and the end of 150 days the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month, and on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and bir clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. This is the word of God. Please remain standing while I pray for the sermon. Lord God, you have promised us so many things, and you have promised goodness on all who love you. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for creation. Please, Lord, bless, bless Kyle as he gives your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, thank you. You may all be seated. Um, it's so good to be with you this morning. God bless you. I'm so happy to have Jesse and Lance with us um, return. Um, they're, they're back. Um, um, Lance retired from the military, and they're moving to Arizona. So God bless them. Um, they're going to be looking just how God might be leading them vocationally. Um, and I talked to governor, our governor, Rhode Island's governor, what's her name, Raimondo? I talked to her and asked her to change the name of our state to Arizona. <laughs> She's thinking about it. We're trying to trick them. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's so great to have you guys and to hear you worshiping Jesus with us again and um, look forward to any time you might be in the area. Always welcome to do that with us. Um, God bless you. And yesterday was a great time, too. Thanks uh, to Yvonne and Jake. Um, are they here or are they sleeping? No, they're there. Yeah, they're here, but they, they're here and sleeping. <laughs> um, thanks for leading our yard sale yesterday. What a great time we, we had. Um, we probably saw around 500 people. Um, there was a lot of people, real hot day too, so I know a lot of you guys worked real hard and thank you for that. We were able to, to raise about $600 for um, the, the Fresh uh, Scholarship Fund at the Tiverton High School, um, or middle is it middle school, the middle school? Yeah, so we're, we're just uh, so grateful to be a part of his memory um, and to be able to contribute to the education of young people. So praise God for that. Um, Hearts of Hope too was, was present in their ministry that served the homeless, and they were able to raise a few hundred dollars, and uh, Heather and Craig were, uh, were representing them yesterday, so what a great day. We got to pray with a lot of people and just hear people's stories and get to know them, um, and, you know, uh, talk about the love of Christ with them, and just thank you all for, for being there, and if you were at that yesterday, and this is your first time here, um, just welcome. So it's so great to have you here this morning. I believe there's some refreshments in the other room over there afterwards if you want to stick around, and we can talk to you more. That'd be that would be great. Um, also, we had a wonderful time at the uh, police station on Friday. I don't know if you knew, guys knew that we were doing that, but on Friday, we got to just honor the police department and the fire department. We gave them lunch. I sang to them, which means they'll never come back to our church again. Um, 
And it was a lot of fun, though, and, um, and Pat Marin organized all that, and um, they felt really honored um, to, um, by our church and uh, just to, to receive that love from us in that respect. So it was really great um, to be able to do that. And the, the deputy chief of police sent us a, a letter that I'll share with you at another time. Um, but it was just very kind and very gracious. Um, um, just very appreciative that we were there. And just thanks to, I know a bunch of you were there too, helping out with that. And it was just a lot of fun. And um, just so grateful to have a church that wants to, to serve Christ and to show the love of Christ to people um, in our community. And uh, what a great opportunity that was. So, but yeah, thanks again for being here this morning. And we're continuing this morning our look at the very first book of the Bible. And it's the book of Genesis. Um, so if you're kind of unfamiliar with what the Bible is or where to find things in it, it's a pretty large book, as you might have noticed. But this one's kind of hard to miss because it's the very first um, um, part um, of the Bible in the very beginning, the very first book of the Bible. Um, and um, it's in chapter 8 of Genesis that we read. And what a remarkable story. Most of us, I think, um, even if you're not familiar with Scripture or what Christianity is or um, anything about the Bible at all, you've probably at least heard of the Noah's Ark story um, and the flood of the Ark. I mean, it's a very popular thing in our culture to at least know some of the basic stories of Scripture and that's one of them. So we're kind of diving into a little bit about why is this even in the Bible? What is, what is God trying to teach us? We believe that the Bible is a, the word of God, um, that he speaks to us through creation, through the created thing. We know that he exists and that he's real because it's, it makes sense. It's logical based on the things that we see around us. But he also speaks to us in a very specific and a special way through his word and ultimately through Christ himself. Um, and, and that's why we open the Bible and we're very diligent to pay attention to it and what God is speaking to. God speaks to us. He speaks to you. Isn't that fantastic that you're not alone, um, that your creator, that your father in heaven loves you. He made you in, in his image. Um, and what a wonderful um, purpose and value you have by that very simple fact alone, that you were created by him to be loved by him and enjoyed by him and vice versa. Uh, but yeah, so now we're di diving into this Noah account, and I wanted to begin with a very uh, re relevant um, poem that I think explains well Genesis chapter 8. The itsy-bitsy spider walked up the water spout. Down came the rain and washed the spider out. Out came the sun and dried up all that rain, and the itsy-bitsy spider walked up the spout again. Now, Kyle is really losing it now, this morning, we can tell. Uh, literature, um, all th as we read different kinds of poems and different um, items of literature, there's many uh, poetic devices that, that we can observe that create a certain amount of beauty in the poem or the, or the literature. They illustrate virtues. They develop main ideas, things that kind of get emphasized based on it. And we often identify poetry in our, in our culture, uh, very sim simplified way of identifying if something is a poem is, does it rhyme? Does it have a meter? Things like this. Um, and this children's poem um, illustrates both of those things, both rhyme and meter. Um, ancient Hebrew poetry lacked a certain amount of rhyming because um, it was just it was a different language than us. To be, not to get overly complicated and complex, but ancient Hebrew, almost everything rhymed. So it's not hard to rhyme something when almost every word rhymes anyway. So they relied a lot on things like parallelism and meter, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, many consider, by the way, Hebrew poetry um, in the Old Testament, and Psalms in particular, some of the most ancient and most beautif beautiful poetry that we have available today. Um, C.S. Lewis was a, um, a literary scholar. A lot of people know him by you know, his writing, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Have you heard of this? Right, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia all this, but C.S. Lewis was a, a brilliant literary scholar. He could read ancient poetry, for, for example, like Homer's Iliad and Odyssey in the original languages. Um, and C.S. Lewis um, um, wasn't a Christian. He was an atheist for a very long time until he came to faith um, to Jesus, in Jesus Christ. Actually, some people don't know this, but um, through the witness and testimony of J.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, um, Tolkien was a believer in Christ, and he led Lewis to faith in Jesus, who was a very hostile atheist. Um, but eventually, he came to faith in Christ, 
But at that point, he was a very brilliant literary scholar. I think he taught at Oxford in England. He said that Psalm chapter 19 is probably the most beautiful piece of literature ever written. (laughs) Now, when he says, if I said that, it wouldn't mean much (laughs) because I don't know anything about literature. Um, But this guy is reading Homer's Iliad and Odyssey in its original languages. And he says, you put up Homer against King David, and it's no contest. Um, David wins. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. I'm reading this in English, by the way. It's much more beautiful in Hebrew. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night. They reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes to the ends of the earth, their words to the ends of the world. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. That's just a portion of Psalm chapter 19. Uh, The book of Psalms, in general, is so valued by the ancient church that you can go online right now and get uh, uh, the the book of Psalms, every single chapter in Psalms, sung to you by an Anglican choir. (laughs) Um, They call it chanting. They believe that the Psalms are so powerful to the spiritual life that they put it to music, and they did that because the original Psalms were songs. The literary structure, now let's get back to that, that incredibly profound and famous poem in our culture, Itsy Bitsy. Um, (laughs) The literary structure of Itsy Bitsy (laughs) highlights the theme of the poem. And what what might that be? Well, his determination. That little spider just wouldn't stop climbing. Um, Hebrew um, literature has a a structure that we can kind of see. The reason I brought up that poem, they have these things called a chiasmus. Um, A chiasmus or chiasms, it's a, it's a way of paralleling s- certain ideas. It's a sort of inverted relationship of parallel ideas in poetry or literature. Now, if you look uh, up on the screen, I, I got a little bit of an example for you, if, if I've lost you. Um, there's a very short poem um, by Goldsmith that reads, To stop too fearful, too faint to go. Very short poem. Thank you. I like the short ones. Um, so this is a chiasmus. Look at what it happens. To stop, if you look at the screen, A. To stop, B. Too fearful. So I'm too fearful to stop. And then, then the, that second B is sort of paralleling the other B, right? Too faint to go. So you see how it starts and then it goes back? You know, one idea, one idea, and then it goes back to the original idea. To stop, too fearful, too faint to go. So the A's kind of parallel each other and the B's sort of parallel each other. And it creates a certain beauty uh, to the poem. Um, What we see happening in Genesis, chapters 6 through 9, is the exact same thing on a much larger scale. And I want to illustrate this for you. It's very important. And I hope, hopefully by the end of the sermon, you'll understand why. Um, Genesis chapter 6 through 9 is the story about Noah. And what we have in the story of Noah, if you could go back to that former screen, I'm sorry. Um, What we have in the story of Noah is basically a a chiasmus structure. And and the reason the, the author is doing this is so that it can emphasize why the flood is happening. What are we supposed to be learning about God in this event? It's emphasizing it in a very profound way. So let's look at the chiasmus. If you don't know the story of Noah, I'm going to give you a quick overview um, of what's happening in the, in the Bible in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. The first thing that happens, you can go to that next slide now. The first thing that happens is God is introducing Noah and his family. And then after that, God introduces in the B... Um, violence and creation. Um, men and women are, are, are treating each other with cruelty and murder and anger and lies and all, all, sorts, of, all sorts of dysfunction and sin. And then after that, we see um, in, in the next um, part of this is a speech. God resolves, I've had enough of this, no more of this. People aren't going to treat each other like this anymore. Um, so he resolves to destroy humanity. And as harsh, as, and, harsh and confusing as that might sound, We'll get to that later, but that's basically what happens in the narrative. Then God says, Noah, you enter the ark. Noah finds favor with God. He says, I'm going to save you and some animals. Construct an ark, right? Um, So Noah does. Noah obeys God, and he does this. 
So when the, when the ark is completed, the next step in the narrative, the story, is the floodwaters begin. The rain starts and the floodwaters rise. And then finally, uh, consequently, because of that flood, um, you have this last point in chapter 7, verses 21, all life dies. So you see how the narrative develops, okay? Introduce Noah, violence and creation, resolve to destroy, enter the ark, I'm going to save you and some animals. The flood begins, the waters rise, all life dies. You guys with me? That's the, that's the flow of Genesis chapter 6 and 7. Now, here it's going to start to reverse itself. Now, this is kind of when we really, if you've already fallen asleep, I, I apologize. Um, but maybe you can wake up now and, and start paying attention, right? <laughs> um, I know, and I, I don't mean to tease you. I know some, sometimes things like this can be hard to follow, and I understand why, why it might be difficult to grasp. But hopefully I'm prevent, presenting it in a way that's simple, and by the end you'll see why. Okay, so here we have this corresponding um, all life dies, but Noah doesn't die, right? God remembers Noah. That's the very first verse in chapter 8 that we read. And then what happens after that? The flood waters recede. See, the flood waters are rising in chapter 7, and now they're going down in chapter 8. Then the earth dries, right? The flood begins, the rains begin, the waters break open. Now the earth is drying. Um, and and um, next, uh, the God makes another speech and says, Noah, leave the ark. And what did he say prior in our corresponding point? Enter the ark. See that? Enter the ark, leave the ark. Chapter 7, enter. Chapter 8, leave. <clears throat> then what we see happening is God um, resolves to preserve creation order. In, in, in chapter 6, he's resolving to destroy creation, but now... In chapter 8, he is resolving to never again destroy creation, to preserve it, as we read. Finally, we have the, the um, last, like almost like the closing footnote, um, um, is to promise to never ru ruin again. There's this violence in creation, um, and then we see a promise never to ruin because of that violence. Covenant is made. And it closes in chapter 9, uh, again with an account, of Noah's family line and his sons. So do you see what's happening? So we have almost like this story, um, this, this uh, progression of the narrative. Violence and creation, resolve to destroy, enter the ark. The ark is closed, the waters rise, all life dies. And then here on these, where these G's are, it's almost like a hinge to a door. God remembers Noah and everything is almost reversed. Did you notice how that's happening? The floodwaters recede, the earth dries, Noah leaves the ark. God resolves to not destroy, but preserve creation. Promises never to ruin again. And then there's an account with Noah's family line yet again. Okay, so some of you are snoring, right? I can see your wide open mouths, and why are you talking about this? Um, I want you to see not only the beauty and brilliance and intention of, of this story. There's a lot more going on than you thought, right? That's, that's kind of what, when I was studying this. I started realizing, like, wow, whoever's writing this is very orderly and very intentional, and he's trying to teach us something. What is he trying to teach us? What's the point of this story? The chiasmus, that's what this is, clearly shows us the heart, the big idea, the primary takeaway of Noah's flood, and it's right in the center. With, in English, three very profound words that I hope we can never forget. God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. In the midst of this deserved chaos, when God, if God is real and he is true and just and right, he could have ended all life as we know it right in this moment, including Noah, but he didn't. God remembers Noah. You see, friends, what I see in that short phrase is grace. This story is about grace. This story is about not getting something that we deserved. God overlooking, forgiving us. God remembers us. And when God remembers us, here's the miracle. Here's the grace 2.0. What scripture calls grace upon grace. When God remembers us, we're saved. We're rescued. 
He doesn't just think, oh, yeah, that's right. There's that person that I made. Oh, isn't that sad? He's stuck on an ark. No, he remembers in, he remembered Noah to save Noah, to rescue him. And friends, when God remembers us, it's for the same purpose. It's to rescue us from any harrowing event that you might have gone through in your life, any trauma, any tragedy. When God remembers you, he rescues you. And oh, friends, how I know how often in my life I've needed to be rescued. My life is falling apart. Don't, don't you go through that at times where there are situations in life, everything just seems to be raining, falling apart around me. This flood water is rising. But God remembered Noah. And he remembers you, friend. Here's where the doors turn on the hinge in this story in chapter 7 and 8. And despite all the deaths of his life, imagine all of the friends that passed in that flood. His home crushed under the burden of the rains. He lost everything, and he's left with a boat and stinky animals. How can you find pleasure in this? How can you find joy in this? When every earthly possession you've ever had is gone, except for some members of your family that tend to fight, and as we'll see in later chapters, delight in your drunkenness and look at you naked, and, you know, post it on Instagram, right? <laughs> this is what you're left with. <laughs> Despite all the deaths of his life, and even his approaching death, you see, he'll make it through the flood, but he's still going to die. There's more tragedy waiting for him on dry ground. Despite the length of time, did you see that in the reading of it? The amount of time that, that those rain, imagine it raining. The other day, I believe, I don't remember what day it was. I think it was last, last, uh, last week at some point. You've all been through this just torrential downpours where it's just, you could go take a shower in the rain. It's raining so much. Imagine it being like that for 40 days, nonstop, in a boat for 150 more days, even after the rains does stop. But now that you're in a boat on a flooded earth for 150 days, despite this length of time and the tragedy and the continued rain and these waters that seemed endless, despite all this loss, we read these words, these powerful words, these words that we need, friends. God remembered Noah. You see, you might think it's the end of you because something has happened to you in your life. But, but friends, when you, when you find favor, when God finds favor in you and forgives you, he remembers you and the hinge turns. So this morning I want to talk about God's grace. You see, I get an F in my preaching class and I think uh, Brother Ray Allen know, might know why. Because that was my introduction. And in preaching, that's way too long for an introduction. They say keep them, they say keep them short. <laughs> but that's my introduction. Because this morning I want to talk about grace. And there are three things that I think that help us understand even more. The grace of God. And I'm going to use, um, I'll get an A in my preaching class for this one. Water, world, and word. Okay, Water, world, and word. I want to explain to you. A little bit more about the grace of God by these descriptors that we find in this story. When God remembers Noah, it's important to note what's happening in his life at the time. It says God remembers Noah. It's raining. He's in a boat and everything just died. So when God remembers Noah, it is in the midst of horrific tragedy. It's not before it. And it's not after it. It's during it. So God remembers Noah. In the midst of this, he say Noah was protected from the rains, but for how long? It's a good question, right? And I'm sure all of us would be thinking this if this were us. At some point, our water, our drinkable water, and our food supply is going to run out on this boat. It's only so long that we can survive before we start dying of salvation or malnutrition or some disease. And had it not stopped raining, or even if the rain stopped, but the waters didn't descend, right? Now they're just floating along. Death would soon be at their front door as well, not just 
the rest of the world. But God's promise to Noah in chapter 6 was to rescue him, to bring him through that death. That even though he was experiencing the tragedy and chaos of the situation, that God would bring him through it. Not, not take him out of it, but bring him through it. And that is often the case with us, isn't it? God doesn't promise to, to, to withdraw tragedy from our lives. To say we're not going to go through hard or difficult or, or awful things. Divorce or death or you name it. But he, but he, allows, he, he goes through it with us. And God promises in chapter 6 that in spite of this, in spite of this ruin, Noah and his family and the creation would live. And Noah believed God. And he believed him when it made no sense to believe him in him at all. Because here is this rain, here is this flood covering the world, and he believes God that he'll be okay. Wow. Gosh, I don't believe, God, that I'll be okay when I get a speeding ticket. Right? The small things of life oftentimes put me into a tizzy. And I think, I'm not going to be okay. I'm in big trouble. You see, that's a small thing, but what about the big stuff? Your wife leaves you. Your husband dies. Tragedy strikes. And you just don't have any faith in your gut anymore. You see, what this teaches us he believed God, Noah believed God, in the flood, when it was happening. And God remembered Noah. Surely God would not allow, wouldn't save him from the flood to simply just have him perish at sea. There's got to be more to this story than that. That would be a bad ending. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, if you go more to the end of your Bible, it says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, hadn't even started raining yet, in reverence, he prepared an ark, he believed God for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah believed God when, by, for all intents and purposes, he should not have believed him. Everything was pointing the other way. And one scholar notes this, about faith. What is faith? Faith is the process of learning to rest in the provision and rescue of God even when everything tells us that God has forgotten us. Isn't that fantastic? All of your circumstances tell you God's not there. He's forgotten you. Faith says, no, he has not. He's alive and he loves me. The God of the covenant is the God who does not forget his friends. He is the God who rides upon the storm, holding their reins tightly in his hands. Fantastic. And how vital it's to remember, to remember this when we start to doubt the promise of God. He's promised, friends, if you've put your trust in the death and resurrection of Christ, he has promised to forgive your sin and to deliver you from every flood water, all of them. You will pass through them and come out alive. Ark door will open one day and you'll step on dry ground. That's the promise of God for you if you are in Christ. That doesn't mean that bad things won't happen to you, but it does mean that there's an after, that there's life beyond, a life you could never have imagined to bring them through the flood and emerge to new life on the other side. You know, those, those waves continue on, though, don't we? Don't we know that in life by experience? They don't seem to subside. They seem to just go on. Like I said before, 40 days of torrential rain, 150 days floating around with endless sea, wondering, are we ever going to hit ground? Finally, you hit the top of a mountain. Right? This is what happens in the story of Noah. He hits the top of a mountain. All right, this is getting a little better. We're on the top of a mountain, but this is not my optimal situation in life. To be on the peak of a tall mountain in the Middle East as the waters hopefully continue to go down. And friends, this is what it's like at life and times. We so often seem like we, we, dot, we, we get out of one flood and then we just go right back into another one. 
One problem is resolved, but now we have another one to face. And it seems like it never ends. And also, there are situations in life, it, it, it appears on the surface, that God has not solved the problem. That God has not delivered us. He has not re- remembered us or rescued us. We look at the, the situation that's happened, and we think that God doesn't remember us. But friend, he does. His promise to you, his pledge to you, is that during the rain, he remembers you. During the flood, he remem- when the waters come up, God's with you. When the rains come down, God's with you. When the, wa- when the rain stops, he's with you. When the floods begin to recede and you're stuck in a mountain, he's with you. It's ironic in Scripture. If you read Scripture, if you read a lot of it, you're going to start learning that water is used oftentimes as like an imagery. And water oftentimes is used as the imagery of destruction, death, God's judgment for sin. We see this all over the place. In the New Testament, Jesus cast out a whole herd of demons, and the demons said, please don't put us in the water, the sea, because it's an Im- imagery of, uh, of God's judgment. We see this all over the place. In the Psalms, monsters of the deep, right? Um, storms and shipwrecks happening to Christ and his apostles. Remember when, when the Israelites, you know, they're stuck in slavery in Egypt, and the Israelites finally get out. The, the Pharaoh finally says, you're free. And they're free. And they start walking out of Egypt. And they hit what? A sea. They left Egypt only to find a sea. And isn't that life? We just, is, what is God, is God, does God hate me? Like I go through all this chaos and destruction and awful situations in life. I think I'm out. Oh, and they just get me right back in. Right? We think we're out, but then we're back again. One sea to the next. And what happens to those frightened Israelites? The sea opens. And they walk through on dry ground. Waters in Scripture are also the image of life. Ironic, isn't it? Death and life, both. The waters of life spring miraculously from the rocks in the, in the wilderness for these same Israelites. Jesus is, in the New Testament, the life-giving water that if you drink his water, you'll never thirst again. Remember that story in the New Testament? In heaven, there are rivers of life that we can drink without cost. So here is this seemingly contradictory message we're getting from the Bible. Water is judgment and death, but water is also life and freedom. What is going on here? Friends, isn't it another picture that it is only through death can sinners find life? And we don't like that. I know. I don't like that either. I don't like that in Romans chapter 6. You know what Paul said in the New Testament? Do you not know that all of you who are in Christ... Oh, this is going to be good, right? All of us who are in Christ are going to get a big pile of money. Um, right? Something, this has got to be good, right? All of you who have been baptized in Christ have been baptized into his death. And you are buried with him. That's not good news. You see, if we stop there, we think, what's going on? Friends, The scripture says that the wages of sin is death. That's the consequence of death. So in order to bring us back to life, what did Jesus do? He died. He took the death for us. He goes through the death with with us to give us life on the other side. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So as Christ, here's the good news. So as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too might we walk in newness of life. So we might walk in resurrection life as well. So is the go- does the gospel say that you'll dodge death? No. But it says that you will find resurrection life on the other side of it. These waters, these seas, all the varied and multiple deaths that we endure throughout our lives, friends, don't they seem to go on and on? But despite the sea stands the Lord of the sea. Despite the sea, stands the Lord of the sea. And you remember that story in the New Testament where 12 
men enter into a boat, not knowing what they're headed for. Jesus is with them, goes to sleep in the stern, and Mark adds, I always appreciated, on a cushion. He's comfortable. He's not just sleeping. He's got a certipostropedic on the boat with him. He goes to sleep. And then what happens? The sea starts to churn, and the, and the lightning starts to crash and thunder. And these men, who are sailors, by the way, are in a tizzy. They think they're going to die. And you know what they shout? Jesus, wake up. Don't you care? You see, Jesus, I heard someone comment, was asleep because he needed to sleep. He was a man like you and me. But he was asleep because he could, he could sleep because he's the Lord of the sea. Nothing happens to us outside of his permission. And he is, isn't it great? He's not on the shore. He's with them. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because thou art with me. You don't die alone. You are baptized in Christ. When the waters seem to suggest otherwise, Jesus remembers Noah. Jesus remembers the twelve. And Jesus remembers you. And no matter how many floods we might endure, he remembers us. And why, quite frankly, number two, his world. To bring us into his new world. That's his promise. That's what he's remembering. To deliver us safely to a new world, a new life, a resurrection life. And what the Noah story, the flood story, clearly illustrates is that God intends to rescue, to restore, and not destroy. You see, the justice of God does destroy. It does judge sinfulness and wickedness in Scripture. That's clear. But it also forgives it and rescues people. It pulls us out of that deserved discipline. The sin, death, and floods continue even to today, but that they continue should signal to us that God intends to rescue us, to restore us. And why should it, con- why should it signal that? Because if, it, if, if he intended to end sinfulness and judge it completely and entirely in all people, we would all just be gone this moment. But that we're alive is a grace to you, extending you the request, would you enter his ark, would you enter his rest? Would you go through death with Christ and not alone? You see, your heart is pumping in your chest still because that offer is made to you, friend. Noah would not have found undeserved favor. Neither he nor any of us would have ever been remembered if God once and for all and finally judged sin right when it appeared. It would have ended with Adam and Eve and we wouldn't have had a mind to object. See? So we can scoff and maybe even be burdened by grief and the tragedies of life. But friends, no one would be rescued had God decreed to stamp it out when it first peaked. To this day, we endure a descending flood, chaos, tragedies and trials, hard ones. But one day, the waters will descend entirely. And the door of the ark is going to open. And our feet are going to stand on dry ground. Did you know that? You see, that's what this story is about. Noah is pointing to a better Noah, a greater greater Noah. That one is Jesus Christ. And when he returns, and when he steps out of the ark, and when he puts his foot on the dry ground, then everything changes. And we're still waiting for that day. Jeremiah chapter 31. This is a passage in the Old Testament. This is the promise I make to you. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to each other, Know the Lord, because they'll all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. You see, there is a new world coming, a new kingdom coming, that when Jesus returns, we have his law written on our hearts, 
and there's no longer idolatry or murder or thievery or lying or insecurity or, or self, selfishness, anxiety or fear or depression because his goodness will be written on our hearts when he comes. Revelation chapter 21, the very last book of the Bible. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The waters had receded. Jesus had come out of the ark, and he stepped onto new ground, you see? I saw, and I, I, saw, I no longer saw any sea. There you go. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her, her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with him. Noah has stepped off the ark. You see this? The better Noah, the greater Noah, Jesus Christ, has stepped off the ark. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old things have passed away. Isn't that fantastic? Jesus has come, the waters have receded, and he's on dry ground, and we're with him. You see, we're Ham, Shem, and Japheth standing behind him with our families and with all the creatures of the earth ready to go back into this world to worship Christ. That's what's the world coming for you if you put faith in him. Friends, there is no problem too big that there isn't life on the other side. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ends to the thirsty. I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and liars, They'll be consigned to the second death. Friends, when Noah stepped off the ark, the human experience remained the same. I don't know if you noticed this, but a verse after the ark, after they get off the ark, it says the same thing about the human heart as it did before. That it was, it was evil. It resisted God. So that hadn't changed. But we know that when the greater Noah comes and Jeremiah we have a new heart. See? It's no longer resisting our good God who loves us, but it's in our hearts to worship him. So friends, Noah wasn't the Christ. He only pictured Christ. And when Christ steps off that ark one day, and he will, that's the promise to us, and when those flood waters recede at his presence, the world is new, Evil is banished. Anxiety and depression are no more. The human heart is restored. And God's love reigns supreme. Isn't that great? The lion lies with the lamb. The leopard with the kid. The child with the asp. And they all sing this collective praise. Glory be to God in the highest. The one who sits on the throne forever and ever. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Friend, isn't the story of Noah the story of nothing less than this? Noah steps on the dry ground of the mountains of Ararat, and there comes another, a greater Noah, who steps on a different mountain, whose feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, and the mount will be split in two from east to west. The Lord will be king over the whole earth, and on that day there will be one Lord, in his name, the only name. You see, friends, Noah stepped on Ararat. When Christ comes, he'll step on another mountain and we'll be free. Wow. You know, the, the promise of God might seem slow to you. But friends, he remembers. His world is coming. And in Christ, you're going to pass through every death you enter. And as promised, you'll enter into his kingdom. That's grace. That's grace squared. That's grace 
That's that greater grace in Scripture, grace upon grace. Not simply to give us peace and life or a sense of joy and self-worth, but to rescue us, to bring us back to what he initially intended for us. This world and everything in it is the Lord's. And he's coming to take it back. And that's his word, number three. His promise, his pledge, he remembers. When Noah steps out of that ark, you know what Noah does? Did you notice this? He doesn't have a party. He doesn't crack open some, you know, case of wine that he was preparing, you know, to see. Remember that Michael Scott episode where, you know, he's got like the, the bad day box and the good day box. Remember that? He doesn't have one of those. He's got, instead of partying and instead of dancing, you know what Noah does? He goes to church. <laughs> On his Easter morning, right, he comes, he emerges from the ark. On his Easter morning, he emerges from the grave. He doesn't dance or sing. He doesn't eat or play. He prays. He builds an altar. And shockingly, he kills an animal and sacrifices it to God. Like, Noah, didn't you learn? God's a rescuing God. Why are you killing something? The boat builder is now an altar builder. What, what's going on here? It seems odd on the day that his life was saved that he decided to start taking life from some animal. Why does Noah do this? And it's very simple. Because Noah is not Jesus. And he knows it. Noah knows that there is a greater flood. A bigger one. And that flood is the God that we all stand before, ready to give an account for the things that we've done and what we've believed. You see, he knows that that God awaits him. And without the sacrifice of Christ, which that animal pictured, he would remain in his sin. You see, Jesus was still to come. Jesus was the sacrifice, the lamb. He'd be rescued and creation rescued because God was faithful to his word to provide the greater sacrifice. You see, that's what's going on here. That's why a sacrifice is exactly appropriate in this situation. A clear statement that God is holy, that he won't be mocked, but a clear expression that he's loving and gracious. And friends, there's a place of security in the ark, the ark of Christ, covered by the blood of Christ, being found in Christ, covered by him. Noah knew that despite the present tragedy and rescue, that there would be the ultimate tragedy and the ultimate rescue and the crucifixion of Jesus, that that had not happened yet. So God remembered Noah. He remembered his promise to Noah. And Noah knew it. So what do we conclude? One pastor said this, and I'll leave you with this. In the abyss of our disappointments, we find God's hope. In the deepest depths of appalling guilt, we find God's grace. In the bitterness of suffering that offers no escape, we find God's love. At the heart of everything is God's unswerving yes. And God stands firm. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you that in your word, that all of your promises are yes and true. They are yea and amen. God, we thank you that you remember us. We thank you that you go through the, the depths with us. We thank you that you're bringing us to a new world. And we thank you that your word, your pledge, your covenant is to do just that. Thank you for your promise. God, the ark's door is creaking open. And the Lord of creation is upon it. And his foot is about to land on dry ground. Fear not, for he comes quickly. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slow, slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing any should perish, but that, should, that all should reach repentance. Oh God, thank you, Lord, that the master's foot is at the door. Friends, if you don't know him, 
come and get him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Thank you, God, for this time. And we ask that you would just bless our time of communion together as we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And friends, would you just continue with me in silent reflection and prayer as we are about to take communion together. The Lord's Supper has been part of the weekly worship service of gathered followers of Jesus since the birth of the church. It is a practice the local church is instructed to perform regularly and soberly. At Refuge Church, we approach the table with reverence and gratefulness as we serve Jesus together as members of his body. Receiving the Lord's Supper is a public declaration of faith in Jesus Christ, marked by a new affection for him willingness to follow and obey him. It is an identification with Jesus and his people. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, we ask you to simply observe the church in their demonstration of faith and love to Jesus and to each other, and to do something far more important. Seek the Lord in silent prayer. Consider what you have heard and what he has done for sinners like us. None of us, not even followers of Jesus, should take the supper in an unworthy manner. So before we come to receive the elements, let's examine ourselves and confess to Jesus, who is faithful and right to forgive us whenever we ask. As the music plays, you may come forward when you're ready to receive the elements. If the ushers are not up front, they will leave the elements on the table in front of the pulpit. Remember that should be our blood in this cup and our body broken on this plate. Instead, it was Christ's on our behalf. Scripture reads, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until 